Well, it is the last day of 2017, and I thought um, it'd be a good time to kind of look back and look forward. We're going to look more forward than back, but 2017 has been an interesting year, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe it was just boring. It was interesting for us as a family, as a church, lots of great things happening. But I don't know if you've got some things on your radar that are coming in 2018. And so I wanted to give you some heads up about what's happening so you can get prepared for all of this. All right. Um, For instance, I don't know if you know this, but there's another eclipse coming on January 31st. Now, nobody burned their retinas out this year, did you? Anybody burn your retinas out at the uh, eclipse? It's a lunar eclipse, and somehow it's not quite getting the... The moon never gets the, the publicity that the sun gets, but there's a total lunar eclipse happening on January 31st. The Winter Olympics are this year, and so for two weeks, Americans will act like we care about ice dancing and luge and curling and don't know anything about those. There's a royal wedding in May. How many of you are planning on watching the royal wedding in May? There you go. I see those. There we go. All right. Anybody going to the royal wedding in May? Nobody, anybody invited? Anybody, nobody, I haven't got my invitation yet. I'm sure it's on its way. Right? The summer's got all kinds of big movies. The 10 years in the works. Avengers, Infinity Wars, and Jurassic World sequel, and Han Solo movie, and Incredibles 2 is coming. I don't know if you know this or not, but Disney World is opening up a whole new area, rethemed area on Toy Story, Pixar, all that's happening. Now, the good news for us as a church is, you don't even have to plan to be there because someone from our church will be there. Because someone from our church is always at Disney World throughout the year, all right? So you don't have to worry about it. The World Cup is happening this year, so soccer enthusiasts around, all two of you are excited about that. This is the year of unmanned spaceships. One's going to Mars from the United States. There's a European group that's taking the first one, sending the first one ever to Mercury. And... 2018 is supposed to be the year when space tourism becomes a reality. In December, SpaceX is going to send two people on a week-long trip around the moon. Any of y'all signed up for that particular trip? You'd like to, Alex? They probably have an age limit. They probably... All right. Now listen, if you, uh, if you're into nostalgia, maybe you're into nostalgia and you think, well, what kind of anniversaries are coming up this year? What, what are anniversaries? This is when you begin to feel old, right? So I, I had a, um, I had one of those, I felt a little older moments last night when someone that when I was in college used to hang out with us has a child that has now gotten engaged. You start to feel it around that time, all right? But here's some other things. This year, 2018, is the 50th anniversary of Laugh-In, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, and 2001, A Space Odyssey. Some of you have no idea what any of that is. That's all right. It's the 40th anniversary of Saturday Night Fever and Grease. Now, see, some of you felt that one right there. Right? It's the, this is the one I feel right here, alright? It's the 30th anniversary of the premiere of a show called The Wonder Years. 
And a movie that some consider the greatest Christmas movie of all time, which I don't know that it's a Christmas movie, which is Die Hard. Right? I know. It's on, it's on debates, alright? 20 years ago, Seinfeld ended. That's kind of stuff that makes you feel old, right? 2018. What's in store? Do you realize that one of the interesting things about 2018 is that exactly 90 days from tomorrow is Easter. We're already preparing for Easter, right? And here's the thing. Easter this year is on April 1st. It's on April Fool's Day, all right? So there may, we may have to do something with that around Easter, all right? It's a big year for us as a family. In about a month and a half, I have a 15-year-old, which means... We're taking a driver's test and permit, and i got to go see my insurance agent back there about rising insurance rates with the teenage boy behind the wheel. This May, it's 20 years since I graduated college. Next fall, we will officially have a child in high school, middle school, and two in elementary school. Which is a pretty significant feat until you realize in three years I'll have one in college, one in high school, one in middle school, and one in elementary school at the same time, alright? And then this summer, Susan and I celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's worth applause, right? And so when you get to this time of year, like today, is a time of reflection. Thinking about what's been and looking forward to what's coming. To thinking about how life has changed in a year and to what's happening. For some, it means looking forward to new directions, graduations on the horizon, or um, children moving out of the house, or a new milestone at work. For some, it's unknowns. That 2017 has been a great disruptor and you're not really sure what's happening. People have been setting resolutions over the last few days. Some will wait till tonight and some won't make them at all. How many of you are going to make resolutions or have made resolutions this year? I see those four hands. That's good of you. All right. I like I heard on the radio the other day, somebody said, I plan on gaining three pounds and eating more. That's my resolution because I want to make one I can keep. All right. I heard another guy say that he set a resolution in 2017 to lose 10 pounds. He only had 15 to go in the last two days. All right. So how many of you will never set resolutions? Let me see those hands. All right. So we're a bunch of people that are, don't like goals. All right. But it is a time of self-improvement, right? When you stand on the verge of a new year, it's a time of self-improvement. Church attendance usually goes up in January. That fades as the year goes on in a lot of places, but usually January is a pretty good year for church attendance, and that's unusual because it's usually cold and nasty weather. Vitamin shops have their biggest sales of the year in January. Health clubs, you have a hard time getting in. It's not that more people join, it's just that more people go. And it really does have all these questions like, What should I do about me? That's the question that we ask often at this time of year. What should I do about me? To get slimmer, to get stronger, to get smarter, to get out of debt. 
What do I need to do to become the better version of me? What I want to do today is I want to look at a passage of Scripture. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1 with me. We're going to start a new series next week called Pack Your Bags. We're going to talk about preparing for the next stage of our lives, whatever those stages may be. But before we do that today, as we stand on the verge of a new year, I just want to ask the question, what if we ask a bigger, broader question then what should I do about me? And I want us to get there by starting with an influential chapter from my life. Nehemiah 1, I read as a young pastor in Ripley, Tennessee, doing a Bible study on my own, thinking about the future of that church, and it greatly impacted how I saw the world. I don't remember growing up ever really spending much time in Nehemiah. Like, I wasn't on my nightstand of devotionals to do. But since that moment when I was a young pastor, and I began to read this passage, it has spoken to me in major ways. Now, to understand Nehemiah, and we're going to get there in a minute, because it says the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, that one of the things that we have to understand is the entire history of the Jewish people. Because we can't understand Nehemiah until we understand the history. So I want to give you the Cliff Notes version of Israel's history in about three and a half to five minutes. Good. You writing it down, Alex? Get your pen. There we go. We got our pen. All right. So Israel as a nation starts with the calling of one man. That man's name is? Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Abram becomes Abraham. He's called as a nation. During the first few years of the formation of this people that God calls out for his own, you have what we call the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it's passed on to Joseph who gets into a place of prominence in Egypt. You know the story of Joseph. He's thrown into a pit because his brothers are jealous. He gets sold into slavery. He ends up in a house. He rises in the house. He has a false accusation against him. He is punished for that. He is eventually elevated and saves his people. Saves not only the Egyptian people, but his people when his family comes to Egypt. Years and years and years go on. A Pharaoh rises, does not remember Joseph, puts the Israelites under bondage. They begin to cry out for a deliverer and Moses is brought by God to deliver his people. Moses and Joshua bring them to the land where God has promised them and they finally get to the land where God has promised them and all is supposed to be good. God has called his people out. He has protected them. He has grown them into a nation. He puts them in this fertile land in the middle of what is the, cre- the fertile crescent of civilization and there they are to thrive. The problem is they forget who they're supposed to follow. And after Joshua leaves the scene, you enter into a period of various leaders coming to the forefront and the people of God getting in this cycle of obeying God and then falling away and crying out for help because God has brought brought judgment on the people. They cry out for help and God delivers them through a judge, the book of Judges. 
They repent, turn back to God, get back on the right feet. God restores them. They turn away from God. God brings judgment. They cry out for a deliverer. God sends a deliverer. They get rejoice in that. They're made whole again. Then they rebel and God sends punishment. And they call out for a deliverer and God sends a deliverer. And throughout the book of Judges, there is just a cycle that happens there. And by the end of Judges, we see what it says in the first of Judges, that during that time, it was a time when each man did what was right in his own eyes. At the end of that, the people begin to say, we need something greater than this. We want a king. God says, I am your king. And they say, yeah, but everybody else has got one. God, we need a king. Everybody else has got one. So God says to Samuel, okay, I'll give him a king. The first king they want is someone that looks the part, even if he doesn't act the part. And they get Saul as their king. Saul is not a good king. He does not depend upon the Lord. When they tell him it is time to coordinate him as king, he is hiding in the luggage because he is scared of the moment. They bring him forward. He rules for a while. God says, I've rejected you. And he anoints through Samuel, David. And that begins a long process of Saul relinquishing the crown to David. When you get to David in Israel, you have the golden years of Israel. A united kingdom under a godly king, even though he made his mistakes. And that reign, that solid, good kingdom of Israel lasts through David and through most of Solomon. And if you look at the history of the world, you have a consolidated, strong Israel for about 75 years. Before in 922, when Solomon's son takes over and tries to make the people understand how hard he is, the kingdom splits in two, the northern and the southern, Israel and Judah. 200 years later, the northern kingdom is destroyed by Assyria. Another couple of hundred years later, almost, the southern kingdom is destroyed by Babylon. And when they destroy the southern kingdom, the Babylonians take the brightest and the best to Babylon And they put the Israelites in exile. Destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem, and take all their people away. That's where we get the books of Daniel. This Israelite in Babylon. About 50 years later, God had told them through Jeremiah that he would restore the nation. And about 50 years later, in 539 B.C., The Babylonians are destroyed by the Persians and the guy that comes to power says, why do we have all these people that aren't from here, here? Everybody go home. Cyrus the Great says, if you want to go home, go home. And that year a mass exodus starts back to Jerusalem. And when they get back to Jerusalem, there's great excitement. They begin to rebuild the temple. They finish the temple and Ezra and all that restores everything that's there. But the problem is they don't protect the city. And so they return in 539, but in 444 B.C., almost a hundred years later, we come to the book of Nehemiah. Now here's what I want you to understand about this particular book, and the reason that's all important. 
is because in Genesis 12, when God says that he was going to build a people, he was going to call a people out, he intended for it to be a people that would bring honor and praise and glory to his name and that other nations would look at and say, look how great their God is. And there were periods in Israelite history when for sure that was true. When the plagues hit Egypt, they said, how great is the God of the Israelites. When David was ruling in Jerusalem, how great is the God of the Israelites. Even in some of the judges periods when Gideon or Samson performed mighty acts because of God's strength. Look how strong the God of Israel is. But as the people of God rejected God's laws and God's rule and God's kingship, they moved farther and farther away from declaring the glory of God. And when you get to the book of Nehemiah, what you have is a temple that is smaller than the one they had before in a city that has nothing around it to protect it. And that day and time, if you didn't have walls around your city, it was like having no defense systems at all in our world today. We get to Nehemiah chapter 1. And it says, the words of Nehemiah, son of... Of Hakaliah. During the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, that would have been in kind of where we are today in southwestern Iran, Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. So, so all these guys that have gone back, how's it going? How are things back home? How are things back in Jerusalem? Now, what's interesting about this, we don't have any indication that prior to this moment, Nehemiah had ever stepped foot in Jerusalem. And yet, he's concerned about it because he considers it his home. Verse 3. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and its gates have been burned. Verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keeps His commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear how your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servant, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the command, statue, and ordinance you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I choose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At this time, I was the king's cupbearer. Here's what in this passage so impacted me so many years ago. Is that if we're all honest with ourselves, 
We are by nature selfish creatures. We are by nature people that look after our interest and our desires and our comfort and our wants and our needs. And yet when I read the book of Nehemiah, what is so striking to me is that the moment he hears about the disrepair of the walls in Jerusalem, something that should not necessarily concern him at all, the moment he hears about that, his heart breaks for the people that are living there. And more than that, his heart breaks for the disgrace that the kingdom of God is currently residing in, in Jerusalem. Let me ask you a question today, as we think about the next year, as we think about our own lives. What breaks your heart? What is it if you said, you know what really breaks my heart? What breaks my heart is, what breaks your heart? And maybe a deeper question than that, we're going to leave that one up, but maybe a deeper question than that is, Do the things that break your heart also break the heart of God? Because when Nehemiah sees what's happening, hears what's happening in Jerusalem, what he immediately thinks is, what in the world are we going to do about that? Because I know that God is not honored by what is happening in Jerusalem. And it literally breaks his heart. It says in verse 4 that when he heard these words, he sat down and wept. We're going to talk about that a little more in depth in a minute. But the point of that is that when he says the words, he immediately is shattered in his soul. One of the concerns that I have for my generation and for the generations that follow mine is that we've never had easier ability to express the things that break our hearts or make us mad. And when I see what my generation, what the generation after me, When I see in social media and public forums the things that they're claiming are things that break their heart and make them mad, I realize that we are a superficial people who are spoiled and do not understand what it means to truly seek after the Lord and His will for our lives. Now, I'm just speaking for my generation and the ones that are below, but let me also say this to you. Some of you that are in a generation that is more experienced than mine. Is that a gentle way to say it? Okay. It's not like your group isn't interacting socially on social networks either. And your interaction isn't a whole lot better than ours. Yeah, There's this place on Facebook called Hip Goodlitzville. You might know what Hip Goodlitzville is. We got, we, got some hip, we got some hipsters down here. It's a place where you're supposed to be able to go on and talk about what's happening in Goodlitzville. You know what it should be called? Complaint Central. I didn't get my Taco Bell order fast enough. The service at so-and-so is terrible. We're superficial people. Listen, Nehemiah had it as good as you could have it as a Jewish person living in 444 B.C. He was the cupbearer to the king. He was the right-hand man. You don't put somebody as the cupbearer if you don't trust them. Because you know what the job of the cupbearer was, right? He drank whatever the king drank before the king drank it. So that if somebody put something in there to kill the king, the cupbearer is first. And you don't put somebody there unless you trust them. He entrusted this, 
The king trusted Nehemiah. He's living literally in the palace next to the king. He eats whatever the king eats. He drinks whatever the king drinks. He is living in the lap of luxury. He has everything that you could ever want for a Jewish male living in 444 B.C. And yet, when he hears about the reality of God's people in a different part of the world, he sits down and weeps. What breaks your heart? If you just look at online interactions, it's what breaks the heart of my generation is bad food service and legislation that doesn't go through. Movies that don't get made. And songs not getting their right justice. That's not all. There are deeper things, deeper issues. And some even like the legislation thing is tied to deeper things. But what if 2018 for you centered around asking the question of God, what is currently breaking your heart that I can do something about? Lord, what is it that is breaking your heart that I can do something about? What if your 2018 centered around doing something to further the kingdom of God? What I want to do for the next few minutes is ask, well, what would that look like for us? And we find it right here in Nehemiah chapter 1. And the first thing we see in this passage is, for us to get to that point, for us to see things happen, we first have to have an unselfish concern. Look what it says there in verse 4. When he heard these words, I sat down and wept. Wept. So the first picture we get of Nehemiah in this book, he gives a description of having a conversation and crying. And so maybe we think, well, maybe he was just overly emotional. Maybe he's just one of those people that cries at every movie. Maybe he's one of those people that can't watch shows like This Is Us because it just makes them fall apart. But when we read the rest of the story, that's not who Nehemiah is at all. He is not a weeper. He's not a crier. In fact, at the end of the book, he is yelling at guys and pulling their hair out physically. There's a moment in the book, one of my all-time favorite scenes in all of Scripture, when he is working on the wall, putting together the wall, helping to get the wall together, and some enemies come and say, hey, we want to have a quick talk, we want to have a quick discussion. And he five times looks at the leader of that group and says, I am doing a great work, I cannot come down. That is not the sound of someone who spends his life emotionally distraught. There is a strength in Nehemiah that is enviable. In fact, one of the things I love about the book of Nehemiah, and this sounds kind of strange, is that there are no miracles in the book of Nehemiah. But God doesn't develop, they wake, go to sleep one night and they wake up and a whole section of the wall is done. The book of Nehemiah is about a guy who under God's leadership leads people to accomplish something that they never could have thought they could have done. And they do it faster than anyone else thought they could do it because they simply work together with one purpose and one goal in mind. That does not happen from someone who is emotionally unstable. And yet, and yet... When he hears the news of what's happening in Jerusalem, it says that he sits down and he weeps. 
He has an unselfish concern. If Israel's wall, if Jerusalem's walls weren't rebuilt, it would not have impacted him in the least for the rest of his life. He could have kept his job, done what he was doing, and never had a worry in his life again. But because of what he hears, the concern in his heart moves him to action. He's concerned about two things. The first is, he's concerned about the good of God's people. See, here's the problem when you don't have a wall surrounding it. What happens is raiders can come in. Other people can come in and they can steal anything, take it away. They can destroy things and pull it away. You go to sleep at night, you leave stuff out, they come in and they grab it and they come away. He's concerned about their welfare. You get this picture at the beginning when he asked about the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish remnant that have survived the exile. He asked with expectation. He acts with hope. He is wondering, hoping, thinking that what he'll hear is, man, they are excelling. The temple's rebuilt. The walls are back. Their houses are good. They're flourishing. God is blessing them. What he hears instead is that they are in great disgrace and trouble. And he wants more for them. I saw an interesting interview that happened in a, a magazine called Relevant Magazine that, that's out this month. And it's with someone that is, um, was at one time considered one of the lewdest and uh, most risque comics that is out there. Who 15 years ago decided to end all drug abuse and alcoholism and to walk away from that lifestyle. And he did it through a 12-step program. And he said the only thing that bothered him at that time was all the religious talk. I saw this interview that's, I think it's out or it's coming out. The preview is out online. And he is now saying, when they ask him about the ills of the world, because he has started to talk about the need that the world has. He has said that he thinks the only hope that this world has is in the teachings and the life of Jesus. Now, I'm not sure from reading this that he's a full convert or he's, you know, he's out there evangelizing. He just says as he realizes what is happening, people are searching for more. He quoted um, a theologian who once said that every knock on the door of a brothel is a knock seeking the heart of God. The point is that every time someone attempts to do something wrong, they're looking for love, they're looking for satisfaction, they're looking for approval. The guy's name is Russell Brand. He's an English comic. And he, in the description of this lifestyle, talks about how he has moved to the place that he realizes that what our culture is seeking through the instant access we have to everything is what we cannot find in the instant access to everything that can only be found and satisfying to us as a generation, as a people, as a world is found in the teachings and the understanding of Jesus. What Nehemiah sees when he hears the description of what's happening in Jerusalem, is that they thought when they got back, they would find everything they needed in a temple and in a house and in the surrounding area of being in Jerusalem. But the point is, to be in Jerusalem without God is not to be where God intends for you to be. And they had not sought the Lord like they should. Can I just tell you that we got a lot of people in churches in America today, living like the exiles were living in Jerusalem. 
They have the comfort of a church membership. They have the comfort of living in America. They have a comfort of a tradition in their family of being followers of Jesus. But they are not experiencing in any way the life that Jesus intended because they have not given their life to following God. Every day with all they have. And when Nehemiah hears that, he has an unselfish concern for the good of God's people. Second reason he has this concern, or the second reason for it, is because he is concerned for the glory of God's name. This is the big picture. This is the main thing. Because you're going to see this in his prayer. We're going to talk about this in his prayer in a minute. But when he sees out, he thinks about this idea that God had separated for himself a people. Genesis chapter 12. That would be a demonstration to the nations of the power and the glory and the majesty of the one true God. And when his people go back to Jerusalem and they build a temple and then they don't build the walls and they don't sustain life. And that life is not what it intended to be. He just in his mind is imagining that Sanballat and the enemies of God that are surrounding the place are looking at Jerusalem and like, that is the capital of the people of a one true God? Really? Because he doesn't look that powerful to me. And so when Nehemiah hears the story of what is happening in Jerusalem, his heart breaks not just for the good of the people, but his heart breaks because the glory of God's name is not receiving, it's not receiving the glory that it deserves. Is the concern of your life the good of the people of God and the glory of God's name? Second thing it's going to take is not just an unselfish concern, but secondly, it's going to take an uncompromising devotion. Look what it says in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And then it says this, I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying. Before the God of the heavens. Now, let me just say, we don't know by that phrase, for some days, how long that might have been. We don't know just from that phrase. From that phrase in the Hebrew, it's kind of an indeterminate amount of time. But what we do know is that when you look at the time frame of chapter 1 and 2, it gives us a better understanding. Because it says in chapter 1, during the month of Chislev, now here's the thing, in the month of Chislev, In the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, that would have been somewhere around November or December. So I know that all of you have your your Jewish calendar um, conversion charts to English calendar, American calendar, right? But if not, that's somewhere around November or December. December. And then chapter 2, it says that when he actually goes to the king, it's during the month of Nisan. Now, that's not the automobile manufacturer. That is a month on the Hebrew calendar. And the month of Nisan would have been somewhere around March or April. So what you have here is somewhere around three months, 90 days. And so for 90 days, 90 days... He sits down and he prays and he mourns and he fasts before the God of heavens. And our understanding is, if this is not the prayer he prayed every day, all day long, it is a representation of the prayers that he prayed every day, all day long. So for 90 days, he is repeatedly praying the prayer that is recorded in chapter 1, verse 5 and following. 
And when you see that prayer, it gives us an understanding of what it looks like to walk with the Lord and to seek His face for what's happening. The first thing we see here is that He spends time seeking the face of God. It says, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. He recognizes who God is. He calls Him the sovereign God, the God of the heavens, the one that has made everything come together, the one that is in complete control. Scripture had predicted that God would send a deliverer by the name of Cyrus to come and to bring the people back. And then when Cyrus the Great comes and brings the people back, the Scripture came full circle to show that God was in control at all times. He has never left His people or the plan that He had in place. He calls Him awesome. Awe-inspiring God. Awesome God. I'm from the generation that it's hard to hear that phrase, awesome God, without thinking of the Rich Mullins song that came out many years ago. I used to think it was almost comical, the first couple of lines in that song, when it says, when he pulls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the Ritz. Now, first of all, because nobody talked about putting on the Ritz unless you're talking about a cracker, right? Like, that used to be a thing, you know? But the point is that we serve a God who is awe-inspiring. And powerful. Able to do whatever. He said, I'm seeking the face of a sovereign, awesome, faithful. He says, you keep your gracious covenant with those who love you and keep your commands. First of all, that's an admission. And we'll talk about this again more in just a minute. That's an admission Of the guilt of Israel because he says all that has happened to us is our fault and not yours. Because you have always kept your commands. And then he says let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive. And then he confesses the sins of the people to him. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Now I want you to think about how strange that sounds coming from the mouth of someone who is a cupbearer in Susa to the king of Persia admitting the sins that he is a part of with the people that are living in Jerusalem. One of the first things I said is that we live with a selfish nature and part of that selfish nature is none of us ever want to admit our own sin much less sin that we may be distantly connected to. But when you come into an understanding of who God is and what we have done, just like Isaiah did in chapter 6, he says, I live among a people of unclean lips. Here he says, I admit and confess the sins we have committed against you. He says, I want to know you. I want to seek your face. You are a sovereign, awesome, faithful, holy God. And I am coming before you broken for my people and for my sin. And I am bringing my request before you as a broken man. And I wonder sometimes if our prayers for revival and our prayers for restoration and our prayers for our nation and our prayers for our churches are not focused so much 
on the people out there and what they're doing wrong. That we are missing the boat on the fact that God is looking for first confession from his people about how we have walked away and have abandoned the laws and the mercy and the grace of God. And until we get on our knees and confess our sins, that God is not going to move in the way that we are requesting him to move because our sin is the barrier to his movement. And yet, if you polled most Christians in America today, the sin that is the barrier to God's movement is theirs. Not ours. He seeks God's face. He prays. It tells us in verse 8 and 9 that he wants to know God's word. He's asking God, don't you remember what your word said? Don't you remember what was being taught? Don't you remember what is happening? God, you have promised this. And God loves it when God's people, when we relate to him things that he has already said to us and done to us. And in knowing God's word, let me just tell you, as you know God's word, your heart begins to beat with the heartbeat of God. As you place God's word in your heart, you begin to care about the things that God cares about. You begin to live for the things God wants you to live for. You begin to love the things that God loves. You begin to hate the things that God hates. God's word through his spirit interpreting in our soul changes how we view the world. Verses 8 and 9 says that please remember what you commanded. And the word remember there is used over and over again by Nehemiah. But his point is I want to know your word. I want to know what it promises. And I know what you have promised in there to your servant Moses. If we will be faithful you will restore us. And God we are calling on your restoration. And then he also, in this uncompromising devotion, asks God's provision for him in doing what God has called him to do. God, just give me favor. We know in chapter 2, and I would encourage you just to go read the book of Nehemiah, especially the first six or seven chapters, and just see the accomplishment that happens there. But in chapter 2, we know what's going to happen is he's going to walk into his boss, King Artaxerxes, and he's going to say to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the world at that moment, King, you've given me a great job here, but I want to leave it to go be a captain of wall builders. And what's crazy about that is in that age, in that time, if you said that kind of thing to a king, it was generally seen as a highly disrespectful move. I mean, can you imagine today the kind of field day the press would have if one of the top ranking officials in the Trump administration walked into his office and said, I'm leaving because I need to go back to my hometown to be mayor. Now, I don't want to know what the tweets would be coming out from the president or the media, right? Nehemiah was walking in and he says, Lord, just show me your favor. It shows us the last thing that is required for us to do something for the glory of God outside of ourselves. And that is an unyielding desire. Two things we see here and then we're done. He says, give favor Be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of the servants who delight to revere, honor your name. You see, everything in Scripture comes back to this desire from people that are following God to give Him the glory and the honor that He deserves. I mentioned this last week. I love Christmas. I've talked about it for the last couple of weeks because people sing good theology all over the place. It's all over the radio. 
Now, there, like I said, there's some bad stuff out there too. But for the most part, people sing good. I mean, Hark the Herald Angels Sing has great theology in it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. One of my favorite songs written by Walt Whitman in a day when he found out that his son had probably been killed in the Civil War. And he's walking by and the, be- the bells are pealing. And he thinks in his heart, there's desperation, there's no joy. And then he says, no, God's not dead, nor doth he sleep. He is real and He is alive. I love the fact that the name of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the words of Jesus are on the lips of people that do not in the least care about the story of Jesus. But my desire is not that we have Christmas every day because to celebrate Christmas without Easter is to celebrate something that is insignificant without Easter. But what I desire is that the glory of the God that I serve and that I know is on the lips of the people all around me. And that our nation is singing the praises of God on a regular basis. And we are a long way from that. I'm not talking about yielding to a political preference. I'm not talking about coming along on policy issues. I'm not talking about getting along and hugging each other. I'm talking about true reconciliation that comes in the life of sinners who are saved by the grace of God and begin to proclaim the story of God to the nations and declare the glory of God. But my concern in our country right now is it's not even close to that happening with the unbelievers because I don't see in believers this desire for the glory of God's name to be spread among the nations like it shows me in Scripture that a passionate follower of Jesus ought to be. And we have settled for lives of comfort and excess instead of honoring The one who gave it all to us. And what I see in Nehemiah is a man who was so concerned. He had such an unyielding desire for the honor of the glory of God. That he risked everything for the purposes of God. He risked his job. He risked his life. Walking into Artaxerxes' throne room and saying... I'm done. I want to go back. And if you could, could you send some supplies with me? Was one of the boldest requests you will read anywhere in Scripture. And his life was literally on the line. And yet he said, the glory of God demands more. My prayer for us as a church in 2018 my prayer for you as an individual in 2018 is that the glory of God and the spread of His kingdom would become such a driving force in your life that you would literally be willing to risk everything to see His purposes accomplished. And that what breaks the heart of God would break your heart. And that in 2018... When you find out what that is that would break God's heart that you can do something about. That you do something about it. For the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom. Let's pray together.